You may have seen their members knocking on doors to spread the word about their religion, read about them in the news, or followed their many cases in the Supreme Court throughout the years. Today, we'll be talking about Jehovah's Witness, one of the most secretive religions in the world that has faced multiple controversies for their refusal to participate in the military, ban of blood transfusions, and multiple accusations of hiding sexual assault. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we will be discussing Jehovah's Witness. This episode contains multiple mentions of mass violence and sexual abuse. So if these are topics that may be too difficult for you to hear at the moment, feel free to skip this episode. Now let's get started with the background of the religion and how they got their start. Charles Taze Russell was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1852. Throughout his life, Russell was raised as a Presbyterian and Congregationalist. But by the time he turned 20 years old, he left both religions. He was skeptical of Christian religious views on hell and his skepticism only increased when he met William Miller, a follower of the Adventist movement who introduced him to new beliefs. With the help of William Miller and other members, Russell studied the Bible and wrote his first two Bible journals in 1877. By 1879, Russell published his Bible journal entitled The Watchtower. It was here that he described his religious belief involving Armageddon, Jesus Christ's return to earth, the religious reckoning and subsequent end of the world. He founded the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and quickly gained followers after his Bible journal was circulated en masse. His followers were called Bible students at the time. The Bible students and Russell followed the rules and practices that prepared them for the Armageddon. Russell believed that Armageddon would take place in 1914. And when World War I began that very same year, Bible students rejoiced and believed that it was a sign that Russell was right and Armageddon was upon them. Obviously the world did not end and the date was moved to 1918. And as it is 2021 and we are still able to discuss them, that prediction was also wrong. Russell was not able to see if his prediction of Armageddon in 1918 came true since he actually passed away two years before the projected date. Following Russell's death in 1916, Judge J.F. Rutherford took over of the Watchtower Society and quickly altered the structure, policies, and beliefs of the organization, which caused it to fragment. This new group eventually changed its name to Jehovah's Witness in 1931. The name change was meant to display the beliefs that Jehovah was the one true God and his followers were his witnesses. During the same time, Judge J.F. Rutherford also helped the witnesses to develop their own legal department and to defend members of the church if they were to face any legal issues due to their rules and beliefs. This would come in handy in the future. Since its inception, the religious group has operated under a hierarchical structure. A governing body oversees the activities of congregations and is divided into six distinct committees that are responsible for the administrative functions of the church. The governing body is not elected by the church. Rather, the current governing body chooses the new members. The all-male elders are also chosen by the governing body. The elders oversee the individual congregations and their members and ensure that rules are being followed and conduct Bible studies. Preaching about the unique religious beliefs of the Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses differ from other Christian religions in a few key ways. First, while other Christian religions such as Catholicism and baptism believed in the Holy Trinity of God, Jesus, and the Spirit, the witnesses do not adhere to the Trinity. Instead, Jesus Christ is an agent of God. Additionally, while most Christian religions believe that Jesus was resurrected physically after his crucifixion, Jehovah's Witnesses do not. He was only spiritually resurrected. They also differ in their beliefs regarding death. While they do believe in heaven, they do not believe in hell. Death is not only the death of the physical body, but also the death of the soul. 
They state, when a person dies, he ceases to exist. Death is the opposite of life. The dead do not see or hear or think. Not even one part of us survives the death of the body. We do not possess the immortal soul or spirit. Despite this belief that the soul dies upon death, they also believe in the resurrection of the soul, not physically. Only 144,000 of Jesus's faithful followers will be resurrected with him after the impending Armageddon. And about 8,500 spots that are believed to remain are only for those that follow the rules and obey the scripture perfectly. To simplify, they believe every part of someone, including the soul, dies completely. Unless you are part of this magical 144,000 followers, then your soul will not be resurrected. Speaking of rules, Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of them and few of them, particularly those revolving around secrecy, political neutrality, and canvassing have caused the religious groups massive amounts of controversy, lawsuits, and persecution from governments. First, the followers of the religion are required to remain politically neutral. According to the Jehovah's Witness website, they do not lobby, vote for political parties or candidates, run for government office, or participate in any action to change governments. This stems from the belief that humans were not made to rule over one another. And by remaining neutral, we are able to speak freely to people of all political persuasions about the good news of God's kingdom. It does seem rather ironic that a religion that utilizes a hierarchical structure and has its own governing body remains politically neutral out of the belief that humans were not meant to rule over the other, but neither here nor there. That's just a weird little something something I pointed out. An extension to this rule, they do not go to war or serve in the military. They have been conscientious objectors in every major war and in every national government that participates in a draft since their inception. They do not go to war or serve in the military for three main reasons, obedience to God, obedience to Jesus, and love for others. Their website quotes Matthew 26, 52, which says, return your sword to its place, for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. This quote was followed by the statement, Jesus thus showed that his followers would not take up weapons of warfare. Their website also quotes John 13, 34 and 35, which states, I am giving you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. As war is inherently filled with disdain and hatred from the opposing sides, participating in war directly contradicts this commandment. Jehovah's Witnesses are also banned from receiving blood transfusions. They quote Genesis 9.3 and Leviticus 17.10 through 16 as the passages in the Bible that led to this ban. The Genesis one states, only flesh with its life, with its blood, you must not eat. Leviticus one says, if any man of the house of Israel or any foreigner who is residing in your midst eats any sort of blood, I will certainly set my face against the one who is eating the blood and I will cut him off from his people. And I know what you might be thinking, a blood transfusion is a medical procedure, no one is eating blood. However, a Watchtower article explained the ban on blood transfusions further saying, the transfusion is feeding the patient blood and the patient is eating it through his veins. So while yes, people are not actually eating blood when they receive transfusions, witnesses believe the veins are, and therefore it goes against the passages in the Bible. Finally, witnesses are required to spread the word of God. While this is quite typical for Christians, the Church of Jehovah's Witnesses goes about this a little bit differently. As you probably know, witnesses often canvas or go door to door with pamphlets and a script in hand to spread their message. Members of the church receive training and follow a carefully constructed program in their canvassing techniques. Their website quotes three Bible passages, Matthew 28, 10 and 20, Matthew 10-7 and Acts 5:42 as an explanation for their unique practice of going door to door. 
Matthew 28, 19, and 20 state, make disciples of people of all the nations. And Acts 5, 42 recounts the story of early Christians going door to door to spread the news of Jesus Christ. According to them, door-to-door ministry is the most effective way to reach people and is necessary in their goal to spread the word of God and make disciples. While these are not all of the beliefs and rules within the church, these are some of the rules that have led to the most controversy, legal trouble, and the persecution of the members of this church. Like I mentioned earlier, that legal department has definitely come in handy over the years as their run-ins with the law started as early as 1918. And before we get into taking a look at many, many of these controversies, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. Now that hybrid work is becoming the new norm, strong workplace teams have two things in common, speed and alignment. Both come from having one hub where everyone can share work and processes, manage projects and collaborate with clarity. Notion gives your team one central and customizable workspace that can be tailored to fit any team and brings your teams together so that you can move faster. Notion is an all-in-one team collaboration tool that combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and so, so much more into one space that's simple, powerful, beautifully designed, and easy to use. With Notion, you'll have everything you need in one spot without the silos and context switching that slows companies down. Find out how Notion may be the missing piece your team needs to grow, get more done, and delight everyone who uses it in the process. Learn more and get started for free at notion.so. You can check it out on your own, invite as many people as you want to see how it works. Take the first step forward towards an organized, happy team today, again, at notion.so. This episode is also sponsored by Athena Club because of course it is, because why wouldn't you have dolphin legs even in the wintertime? am I right? Well, perhaps you don't. And honestly, if you're not using Athena Club razors, I can't blame you because I used to nick myself, especially around like my knees all the time. That is until I got my hands on the Athena Club razors. Athena Club's razor has built-in skin guards that are gentle on curves and help prevent razor burn. Their razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, and their razor kit starts at just nine bucks. And for that razor kit, you get two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, and your choice of handle color. Plus there's six color options, and you can choose how often they send replacement blades too. And that magnetic hook for shower storage, that thing is seriously underrated, okay? It's this cute little circle with an angle. They match it to the color of your razor blade handle. And then you simply take off, it's like a little 3M backing strip and you just peel that off, stick it onto your wall. I stick it onto my tile and it works just fine. For the record, I have textured tile in my shower. And then when you're done shaving, you just boop, hang it up and it just like magnetizes to it. It's great, it's easy, it's out of the way. I love it. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code casket. That's athenaclub.com with promo code casket for 20% off. Only one year after Rutherford took control in 1918, the Watchtower organization faced massive legal trouble for refusing to participate in the military during World War I. According to the group, participating in the military went against their religious beliefs and they were conscientious objectors because of it. In 1918, the Canadian Secretary of State issued a decree that made it punishable by a fine of $5,000 and five years in prison to be in possession of Watchtower literature. And that was due to their refusal to participate in the military in World War I. 
In the same year, the United States arrested Rutherford and several of his aides for promoting draft evasion during a time of war. Originally, he and his aides were sentenced to 20 years in prison, but their convictions were overruled and dropped one year later. A few years later in 1935, elementary schools began to expel Jehovah's Witnesses who refused to stand for the flag. This led to the Supreme Court case involving a 12-year-old Lillian Gobitas who had been punished in school for not standing for the flag. Despite originally winning the case in lower courts, the Supreme Court ruled against them in Minersville School District v. Gobitas. This ruling, which came during World War II and the growing violence from the Nazi government in Germany, was meant to help legislatures promote unity in the face of the growing threat of Germany. The news of this case prompted multiple acts of violence against Jehovah's Witnesses, as many people believed them to be anti-American and sympathizers during a time of war. The violence included beatings, destruction of kingdom halls, and at least one castration. Some newspapers and national leaders who were aware of the increasing violence towards members of the church came out to condemn it and widely criticized the role of the Supreme Court in instigating it. This ruling was later overturned in West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, which found that people could not be forced to stand or salute the flag for any reason. Unfortunately, this was not the only persecution Jehovah's Witnesses faced during World War II. It is a little known fact that Jehovah's Witnesses who were also targeted by German officials during the war were also targeted with mass violence by the Nazis. Roughly 1500 Jehovah's Witnesses were prosecuted in Germany due to their refusal to join the military, vote, salute the swastika, and because they continued to meet for prayer and worship. Over 500 people were put to death after they withstood trial either by beheading, gas chambers, or lethal injections. Gerhard Leibold, who was 22 years old, was beheaded on May 6, 1943. His execution came two years after his father, who was also a Jehovah's Witness, was beheaded in the same prison. He wrote a farewell letter to his family saying, "'Without the power of the Lord, "'I would not have been able to walk this path.'" Another young man, Rudolf Buckner, who was only 17 at the time, refused to join the Nazi military. After a trial, he was beheaded by Nazi officials on September 22, 1944. In a letter he wrote to his mother before his execution, Rudolf Buckner said, many brothers have walked this path and so will I. The remaining 1000 witnesses who died during the Holocaust were placed in concentration camps. There they were forced to work hard labor in horrendous conditions and were often subjected to torture and starvation. During their time in concentration camps, witnesses were also subjected to deadly medical experiments. The cause of death is not known for all of the cases and researchers continue to update the figures and details about what happened to Jehovah's Witnesses during the horrors of the Holocaust. According to their website, stories of Jehovah's Witnesses spread throughout concentration camps and they were admired for standing against the war and the Third Reich. They quote an Austrian prisoner as saying, they do not go to war. They would rather be killed than kill anyone else. This was certainly very accurate as Jehovah's Witnesses have a long-standing history of enduring persecution due to their refusal to participate in militaries around the world. Jehovah's Witnesses were also conscientious objectors in America during World War II and refused to join the draft. In 1946, Anthony Sicurella refused to answer the call for the draft and was arrested. The draft board decided that he could not be a conscientious objector because he did not object to participation in war in any form. This belief from the draft board after he stated during questioning that he was willing to act in self-defense or in defense of fellow Jehovah's Witnesses if they were also attacked. 
Also, he said he believed in theocratic wars and would fight for Jehovah at the Battle of Armageddon. To be considered a conscientious objector, one must refuse to participate in war of any kind. And his belief in and willingness to fight in a religious war actually disqualified him. However, in 1955, the Supreme Court found that he was exempt from military induction. In regards to Sicarella's statements to the draft board, Justice Tom C. Clark wrote that they had neither the bark nor the bite of war as we unfortunately know it today. It is difficult for us to believe that Congress had in mind this type of activity when it said the thrust of conscientious objection must go to participation in war in any form. Basically, the Supreme Court decided that theocratic wars did not count as the war in any form they were initially referring to. The court cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses went far beyond their refusal to participate in war or stand for a flag, and many of their other beliefs have led to legal troubles for the religious group. For instance, Jehovah's Witnesses have also faced court cases regarding their rejection of blood transfusions. Two US courts in 1964 decided that the hospital staff could force transfusions for members that needed it to save their lives. On September 17, 1963, the Georgetown Hospital sought relief from the United States District Court for the District of Columbia that denied the hospital's permission to administer blood transfusions on a Jehovah's Witness patient, Jesse E. Jones, who was in extremis, a Latin word for close to death. And she refused blood transfusions due to her religious beliefs, despite needing them to save her life. Later in the case of Georgetown College versus Jones, the courts ruled that the hospital could administer the blood transfusions to Jones against her will, stating, Patient's religion merely prevented her from consenting to a transfusion, not from receiving one. In the same year, the Raleigh Fitkin Paul Morgan Memorial Hospital brought a case to the Chancery Division of the Superior Court to administer a blood transfusion to Wilmina Anderson. Anderson was 32 weeks pregnant and was at increased risk of hemorrhaging severely during her pregnancy or childbirth, which would likely cause herself or her child to die. In the court case of Raleigh Fitkin Paul Morgan Memorial Hospital v. Anderson, the court decided that Anderson could not reject a transfusion and the hospital could administer one against her will. The court released a decision and directed the guardian to consent to such a blood transfusion as may be required and seek such other relief as may be necessary to preserve the lives of the mother and the child and to direct the mother to submit to such blood transfusions and to restrain the defendant husband from interfering therewith. Both of these cases were later rejected by the US courts. And over the last 40 years, the United States has decided that adult Jehovah's Witnesses can refuse blood, even if it would save their life or when children may be affected. However, in terms of minors, hospitals continue to seek orders to give blood when it is necessary to save a minor's life. And those are usually granted. Despite a slight lull in the court cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses from the 1960s onward, they found themselves in court once again in 2002 due to their canvassing. The village of Stratton in Ohio, as a way to protect its residents from fraud and crime, made it a misdemeanor to canvas door to door without a permit. As a reaction to the ordinance, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York, the governing board countered, claiming the ordinance went against their first amendment rights. The case went through the federal district and appeals courts where the ordinance was upheld each time before making it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided eight to one that the ordinance did in fact violate the first amendment rights. Most importantly, it violated the protections for anonymous political speech, religious and political canvassing and pamphleteering that may have an integral aspect of America's freedoms and allow expressive forms of controversial views without persecution. Justice Stevens wrote that the ordinance both restricted more religion and political speech than was necessary to accomplish the government's interests and failed to prevent fraud and crime. 
Thanks to this decision, the organization and its members were again allowed to canvass the village freely and openly, and they did just that, despite the knowledge that the village clearly did not want them to. And just one of the things that I just can't wrap my head around when it comes to this entire situation is just this question. Why not get a permit? I tried to research why they didn't get a permit, but it seems that it would have been more difficult and hindered their mission, I guess. Um, Technically getting a permit may count as being politically involved, so that could be a reason as to why they weren't doing it. The only thing I find really interesting about this is that no one was you know, forbidding them from speaking. They were just saying, you know, just get a permit to do this. That's all they were asking for. I just, I find it weird, but either way, the results of the case are the results of the case. The Supreme Court heard over just a dozen court cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses. Despite this, Jehovah's Witness memberships have continued to rise and they reported an active membership of over 6 million people in 234 countries in 2004. But despite their rise in membership, their growth also has been coupled with more controversy, persecution, and rising allegations from former members of misconduct. Zulu hugging Japanese woman in a kimono. Tswana singing songs for American delegates. Impossible. German delegates hugging closer fellow brothers and sisters. Who are these people? We are Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, around the world, we are united in a brotherhood bonded by love. When a member of Jehovah's Witnesses leaves or is kicked out of the church, they are disfellowed from the organization and shunned by all current members. In 1981, Raymond Franz, who was a third generation witness, left the church and continued on to write two books about the church's beliefs, their wrongdoings, and the failures of the church. Raymond, who joined the governing body of Jehovah's Witness in 1970, following in his father's and his grandfather's footsteps. During his time as a member of the governing body, he traveled to over 50 nations to deliver speeches about the church's beliefs and helped to organize and manage congregations across the world. However, in 1980, Franz had a friend that began to disagree with Jehovah's teachings and argue with the other members of the governing body. Due to this, he was disfellowed from the church. The rules of disfellowship demand that current members of the church shun those who have been kicked out. However, Franz decided not to follow this rule and was cited sharing a meal with a friend after his disfellowship. He was ultimately forced to leave. In a rare and relatively bizarre interview with Time, Franz described his experience in Jehovah's Witness and the circumstances surrounding his disfellowship. He stated, in one stroke, they eliminated all my years of service. I frankly do not believe there is another organization more insistent on 100% authority. In his book, Crisis of Conscientious, Franz accounts his history with the religious organization in great detail, explaining not only what he did through his over 40 years of service, but giving word-for-word accounts of his discussions with the governing board that led to his disfellowship. Since the organization relies heavily on secrecy and confidentiality, Franz's book was one of the first of its kind that explained the inner workings of the religion and the practice of the disfellowship in detail. While it may be one of the first, it is not one of the only, and many ex-members have continued to come out and many of them have exposed Jehovah's Witness as an organization that allows for and does not report sexual abuse. Over 40 years later, Jehovah's Witnesses again came under fire by members they had disfellowed. This time, past members accused Jehovah's Witness of neglecting to report instances of sexual assault. In 2016, the Royal Commission of Australia conducted a case study exploring the experiences of two survivors of child sexual abuse, the response of the group to the survivor's complaints and the systems and policies that are in place within Jehovah's Witness to respond to allegations of sexual abuse by its members. 
Within the evaluation, Jehovah's Witness stated that it abhors child sexual abuse and will not protect any perpetrator. When sexual abuse is reported, the organization conducts a quote, spiritual investigation, end quote. Two male elders are called to investigate the matter and must receive either a confession from the person who has been accused or the testimony of two or more credible eyewitnesses. Without a confession or other witnesses, the allegations are ignored by the elders and ultimately deemed as not truthful. And if you're ripping your hair a little bit at the thought of this statement, um, then you're not alone because same. Uh, This is obviously not how sexual abuse works. Rarely are there two eyewitnesses. And if there are, most certainly ones that would come forward are even more rare, let alone the accused confessing to their crimes. However, even when elders do find the allegations to be truthful, it is not the practice of the organization to report it to authorities unless it was required by law. At the time that the Royal Commission of Australia conducted their case study, 1,006 members of the congregation had been accused of child sexual abuse and none of those allegations had been reported to the police. The two women involved in the study remained anonymous and went by BCG and BCB. BCG was abused by her father as a child. Both she and her sisters accused their father of abuse, but despite this, the elders did not find enough evidence to establish truth in their accusations as he did not confess and the two young girls did not have other witnesses to attest. However, the elders did decide to disfellow him because of extramarital conduct. While her father appealed the decision, he also confessed to sexual assault. His disfellowship stood. However, his abuse was never reported to the authorities by Jehovah's Witness. Despite knowing that this man had confessed to sexually assaulting both of his daughters, he was actually reinstated only three years later. About 10 years after BCG reported her abuse, she decided to leave Jehovah's Witnesses and report her abuse to the police. BCG had chosen not to report her abuse while she was still in the church out of fear that she would have been disfellowed for going against the church's strict rules of confidentiality. When she left, she no longer had this fear. And finally, after three different trials, her father was found guilty and sentenced to three years in prison. Another woman who took part in the case study, BCB, was sexually abused by an elder in her congregation. She disclosed the abuse when she was an adult and it was investigated by two other elders. Since there was no second witness to her abuse and the person she had accused obviously did not confess, her allegations could not be established true by Jehovah's Witness. So her allegations were dismissed. In 2016, Jehovah's Witness faced yet another lawsuit when a woman by the name of Alexis Nunez sued the organization for negligence for failing to report her abuse to the authorities. This came after over two decades of Maximo Reyes sexually abusing multiple children within the church. In 1998, he was accused by his stepdaughter, Holly McGowan. Since he didn't confess and there was no second witness, the elders did not take any further action. Then six years later, her brother accused Maximo of sexual abuse. This time, Reyes was disfellowed from the organization, but he was reinstated less than a year later. Then in 2002, Reyes continued his tirade of abuse and assaulted Alexis. According to McGowan, Alexis was five years old when Maximo's abuse began and 10 years old when it ended. Despite the continuous stream of allegations against Maximo, Jehovah's Witness elders never told authorities of his behavior or of the allegations. When Nunez originally brought her lawsuit against them, she was awarded $4 million in actual damages and $31 million in punitive damages. However, four years later, the Montana Supreme Court unanimously reversed the decision. Justice Beth Baker wrote that the church was not mandated to report the abuse under a state law that read, a member of the clergy or a priest is not required to make a report under this section if the communication is required to be confidential by canon law, church doctrine, or established church practice. 
In other words, since confidentiality is part of Jehovah's Witness practice and regulations, they are not legally required to report instances of abuse. Unfortunately, this has led to over a thousand unreported cases of abuse in the church, and that is only the amount we know of. It could be much worse. Other women who have left the church have come out with accusations of the church's wrongdoings and have called them, quote, cult-like. Sherry D'Souza was 46 when she left the church and Naomi was 22. Both women recounted stories in an interview with ABC of never getting to celebrate birthdays and being discouraged from finding full-time work after finishing school. Being told by the church to spend over 70 hours a month door knocking and recruiting new disciples was apparently what she had to do. When Sherry began taking courses in health while an active member of Jehovah's Witness, the elders questioned her husband as to why he was letting her study. The two women said that their lives were totally controlled by men in the organization, either by their husbands or by elders in the church. It was after Sherry broke the religion's rule against reading things sourced from the outside world as she read the 2016 Royal Commission report that she began seriously questioning the religion, stating, "'In its most simplistic form, the religion teaches that everything within the organization is from God and everything outside is from Satan. So I was like, why is it taking Satan's organization to tell God's organization how to protect children? This doesn't add up.'" Sherry said she felt emotionally manipulated, abused, and betrayed. Since Jehovah's Witnesses are not supposed to read anything from the outside world nor speak out against the religion, Sherry was ultimately disfellowed and shunned by her family and friends that were still members. Her husband followed her and left the church when she was disfellowed. Naomi eventually left the church after being forced to hide her sexuality as a Jehovah's Witness. The religion condemns homosexuality and Naomi's sister even suggested that she do conversion therapy, which as we talked about in our Chick-fil-A episode, not very cool. Naomi instead decided to leave and moved from Australia to London. Her life in London came with brand new experiences and she went to a gay bar for the first time in her life and came in contact with people outside of the religion for the first time. However, she missed Australia and eventually moved back. And when she did return, she was shunned by everyone in her family except for her mom. Both Naomi and Sherry said that they had to go through years of therapy after leaving the church to recover from the indoctrination. Both of the women found that their years within the religion made them feel disconnected from themselves. And after leaving, they had to work hard to rediscover who they are and who they wanted to be. Since current members are unable to speak out about the religion, disfellowed members are usually the only ones who can recount tales of any wrongdoing, which comes at great cost as they lose any connection to their friends and family in doing so. Despite the multiple accusations of sexual abuse, other wrongdoings, and reports by members that have been disfellowed that the organization is cult-like, the organization continues to grow and is actually one of the most diverse in America. According to the Pew Research Center, the religious group has racial demographics that are 36% white, 32% Hispanic, 37% black, and 6% of other races. The year 2020 led to some massive victories for the organization and big changes in how they canvass. They received a huge victory in South Korea in 2018 when the South Korean government who had jailed over 20,000 of the church's members since 1950 for refusing to participate in the military, decided to alter how they address the issue of conscientious objections. The Supreme Court in South Korea decided that rather than jailing those who refused to serve in the military, they would instead serve by working in jails for three years. After this decision, over 100 witnesses were released from jail and others had their criminal records expunged. In 2020, the first 20 witnesses began their service working in jails. The year 2020 has also led to massive change for Jehovah's Witnesses in the United States. For the first time in the organization's history, they stopped canvassing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Many members of the religious organization, though they agreed with the decision, found it extremely sad as they believed people would be so receptive due to the pandemic and more inclined to join the religion than any time before. However, the group decided the canvassing would leave the impression that members were disagreeing with the safety of those they hoped to convert and therefore found it necessary to stop. They did get more creative though, as many witnesses continued to canvass by sending pamphlets to their neighbors, emails to friends and family, and posting about the religion on social media. So while the traditional door-to-door canvassing may have been stalled, the hopes of gaining disciples were not crushed. Jehovah's Witnesses 200 year long history has been one full of controversy, court cases and secrecy from the religion. And as they continue to grow throughout the world, there's no telling what exactly is going to come next. And with that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new about the interesting and somewhat disturbing history behind Jehovah's Witnesses and what they might be up to. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe to stay up to date on all the recent episodes. I appreciate you spending some time here with me today. Thank you so much for that. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.